Welcome to Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Core, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, we've turned a corner with the Delta variant, but the current numbers remain far above what anyone predicted six months ago. Currently, daily cases are still over 100,000, with deaths down from 2,000, but still close to 1,800 a day. To put into context, that's twice the number of daily deaths our nation was experiencing a year ago. And Delta is the difference, raising fears that we could see another wave come this winter from this highly transmissible strain. In a major development last week, Merck and its partner, Ridgeback Biotherapeutics, announced that their experimental COVID-19 pill cut hospitalization and death by 50% in people with mild to moderate disease and a high risk of complications. Given how well the drug seemed to work, the company said it had stopped enrolling patients in their trial. Merck hopes the FDA will give its approval soon. So far, the actual data has only been presented in a press release and has not undergone peer review. This medication is the first oral drug shown to prevent severe illness and avoids the complexity of intravenous administration needed for most other drugs the current protocol is to use the drug for patients at high risk of severe disease whose symptoms began within the past five days. And having identified them, they would then take eight pills a day for five days. Assuming the efficacy and safety data hold, this would be a major advance in our battle against COVID-19, although it is still far less effective than the currently available vaccines at preventing hospitalization and death. Vaccines have been shown to be over 90% effective and they provide long-term protection, particularly after a booster shot is added. Some health policy experts worry that the availability of a pill solution may slow the rate of vaccination as unvaccinated people see this medication as an equivalent alternative. The drug works by altering how the virus makes copies of its RNA, the genetic material it uses for replication. The drug impacts an enzyme called polymerase that is required to make replication of the viral RNA 
effective, and as a result, faulty and limited copies are produced, which thereby diminish the severity of the disease and lead to quicker resolution of the infection. One concern has been that because this drug impacts the replication process, that it could negatively impact women during pregnancy. For this reason, all participants in the research study were instructed to abstain from sex during the clinical trial and for four additional days afterwards. And in addition, all women of childbearing age were given a pregnancy test prior to receiving their first dose of medication and obviously excluded should they be found to be pregnant. Overall, among the people tested, all of whom had at least one major health issue, such as obesity or significantly higher age, 14% of the 53 patients given a placebo were hospitalized or died, while for those receiving the drug, only 7.3% experienced severe illness. Merck did not release any specific data on the complication rate from the treatment, but did say that it was similar between the placebo and treatment arms of the study. Overall, according to the company, 35% of those who received the drug had some type of adverse effect, while 40% of those who received the placebo did. 1.3% of patients given the drug stopped due to an adverse event, while 3.4% of those given the placebo stopped taking it. The five-day course will cost $700 in the U.S., while lower-priced generics, probably ones manufactured in India, will be made available to lower-income countries. Since the mode of action of this drug doesn't attack the spike protein, as the currently approved vaccines do, it's hoped that this drug will continue to be effective despite future viral mutations. Some health policy experts have pointed out that much of the research on this drug was not done by Merck, but was done at Emory University with a $35 million taxpayer grant from the NIH and Defense Department. As a result, in theory, the federal government would own rights to some of the patents and could theoretically, again, force a lower drug price. Of course, that remains to be determined, and Merck declined to answer any questions on this topic. Jeremy, I've heard that a large percentage of the people who are unvaccinated have said they would take this new Merck drug if available. And we know many of them are already asking for other unproven medications at this point. How do you explain people's willingness to ingest drugs that have not been fully researched and proven to work, but resistant to vaccines that have been safely administered to over 200 million Americans so far with a success rate that exceeds 90%. Robbie, in my opinion, uh, this has nothing to do with science and everything to do with the current political and social climate. You can't even eat a sandwich in this country without it being politicized somehow. Uh, sadly, like everything else in society, the pandemic has become politicized and so has the vaccine. I think for many people resisting the vaccine has less to do with resisting the actual vaccine and more to do with resisting what they view as the government overstepping its authority. Honestly, I think that there's all there is to it. Robbie, it doesn't make too much sense to me why people would be more comfortable taking a, a new drug that's not fully tested versus the vaccine. 
Robbie, the FDA and CDC guidelines are confusing. Who's in and who's out? Jeremy, as you point out, we're still not sure who's eligible for a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine and what will be recommended for a booster among those who received either the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. When it comes to the Pfizer vaccine, emergency authorization was given by the FDA to all people over the age of 65, so they're included, and individuals at risk of being exposed to the coronavirus at work. That obviously includes frontline healthcare workers and first responders like firefighters and police. But it also includes all educational staff, food and agricultural workers, manufacturing employees, public transit staff, grocery store clerks, and several other broad categories of employment. In addition, the authorization includes people age 50 to 64 with an underlying medical condition. As such, in total, Jeremy, more than half of the people who received their first two doses might qualify under these criteria. And the CDC expanded eligibility to include people ages 18 to 49 with an underlying medical condition and anyone 18 to 64 with an increased risk of exposure due to their job. When you combine all the recommendations, my sense is that anyone who wants the booster is likely to get it, although that's certainly not the current government agency set of recommendations. It's expected that people who took the one and done J&J vaccine will be approved for a second shot, with a third shot from Moderna still somewhat uncertain. The reason is that the original Moderna vaccine included a much higher dose of the mRNA than the Pfizer vaccine, and therefore has continued to produce strong immunity. Moreover, the planned Moderna booster will be half the strength of the original rather than the Pfizer and J&J that will use the same vaccine that was given initially. It's expected that a decision on the Moderna and J&J will be reached soon, certainly by the end of this month. In contrast to the US recommendations, the European Union has authorized booster shots for anyone 18 and over. I applaud the regulators continuing to follow new data on vaccines and drugs. That's vital to maximize patient safety. But I wish these governmental agencies would be clearer about their reasoning and the criteria they're using. That would increase the confidence and trust of everyone. Robbie, we've spoken extensively about vaccine mandates. What have we learned recently? The experience is growing almost daily, and so far the approach is working. Nearly all airlines now require proof of vaccination, and rates are over 95%. States with vaccine mandates for all healthcare workers, like New York and California, have seen similar results, as has Texas for those healthcare systems that have put mandates in place. Although, as you are well aware, the governor of Texas today came out against many of these mandates, and so we'll have to see what happens in the future. Overall, approximately 1% to 2% of the workforce in hospitals that have implemented these mandates have decided to take a different job rather than be vaccinated, but vaccination rates now are approaching 100%. And the courts continue to rule in favor of these mandates. In New York City, the requirement 
for vaccination of all teachers and school staff was upheld. As we noted earlier, California became the first state to mandate COVID-19 vaccination for all students as well as all teachers. This requirement is similar to other ones for vaccines like smallpox and polio. Overall, vaccine mandates are now in place for 25% of all businesses and 40% of all hospitals across the country. As a result, we've gone as a nation from 95 million Americans being unvaccinated in January to 67 million today. And that's prior to the Biden administration's planned requirement for vaccine mandates in all businesses with over 100 employees that is scheduled to begin later this year. Robbie, you published a provocative piece for Forbes today comparing COVID-19 to 9-11. What prompted you to write it and what are your general conclusions? Jeremy, I wrote the article when I compared how deeply seared the 2,996 deaths from 9-11 are compared to the 700,000 deaths that have resulted from COVID-19. Now, don't misunderstand. For people who have lost a loved one from the coronavirus, the loss is identical. But as a nation, we don't seem to see these deaths in the same visceral way that we perceive those that came when the Twin Towers were attacked. Researching the subject, I came to three conclusions. The first is that our minds are shocked by a large loss of life on a single day, rather than an identical loss of life over many months. We intensely remember Pearl Harbor and D-Day from World War II, but less so the total number of lives lost overall across the four years of World War II. Had all 700,000 people who have died from COVID-19 passed on one day, it would be acknowledged every year far into the future. But when those deaths are scattered over 18 months, I worry that what we have learned from COVID-19 will fade away the same way that Spanish flu has disappeared from our current thinking, unlike what happened when it ravaged our nation a century ago. And I realized in looking at the topic, how this distortion of perception also occurs. When we compare the opportunity to prevent severe medical problems, like a heart attack or stroke, and compare it to emergency intervention, we undervalue the efforts required to avoid the blood vessels becoming occluded in the first place, while we celebrate loudly the physicians who unblock them even though the potential to avoid unnecessary deaths is far greater through prevention, an approach that happens over many years rather than on a single day. A second conclusion is that we overrate the threats caused by people compared to the danger posed by biological pathogens. All you need to do is calculate how much we spend on anti-terrorism activities versus how relatively little we invest in research be prepared when the next viral pandemic strikes, which biologists and scientists tell us is inevitable. A final conclusion is that our minds do a poor job of assessing comparative risks. As an example, the chance of dying from a terrorist attack is about one in 30 million, while the risk of death from COVID-19 is one in 500. But we think about the possibility of a bomb every time we go to an airport or train station, while 70 million Americans remain unvaccinated, 
seemingly unconcerned about the danger of COVID-19. We view the importance of what we think of as traditional medical care, that's the treatment offered in a doctor's office or a hospital, as being the most effective in maximizing health and extending life. But in reality, it only accounts for 10 to 20% of outcomes. And we undervalue the social determinants of health, where we live, the jobs we perform, the food we eat, which accounts for at least twice that percentage. In writing the Forbes piece, my hope was to help readers understand these failures and how the human mind works and encourage individuals and elected officials to make improved decisions and choices based upon the data at least as much as the emotion. Robbie, a listener wanted to know about the side effects after booster shots compared to the previous doses. Do we have any data? Jeremy, here the data is very positive. According to the CDC, the side effects from boosters are basically identical to what people experienced after the second dose with no additional serious problems being reported. According to the report, among the 12,591 people given a booster shot, 79% of them had some pain at the injection site, as you'd expect, after the third dose. And that was almost identical to the 78% who reported this problem after their second shot. 74% reported a more general symptom, like headache or fatigue after the booster shot, but 76% did so as well after the second dose. It's interesting to go back a year prior to the final data being released on the current vaccines. It's hard to believe that the hurdle for authorization at that time was set at 60%, with almost no one imagining an efficacy above 90%. The feared side effects were massive compared to the very few that have happened. And yet our nation continues to struggle to achieve broad immunity, a goal that would allow the United States to lift almost all of the current restrictions and save thousands of lives every week. Robbie, we haven't heard much about COVID-19 testing lately. What's happening? Jeremy, coronavirus testing is one of those approaches that theoretically would make a huge difference, but in practice hasn't been as valuable as we had hoped. Of course, for people who are sick, testing is essential to make the right diagnosis. And for people coming for medical care, it is routine at hospitals across the nation. At the same time, what we know that there are huge numbers of people who either don't develop symptoms at all or only have ones consistent with a typical cold. And this is common individuals who have been vaccinated, as we just saw with Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and can be identified in people who are tested every day, like professional athletes. The advantage of more frequent and broader testing is being able to identify those individuals who are infected and therefore able to transmit the virus but who are not sick enough and identifying them, hopefully they will self-quarantine. As such, rather than testing being a tool to completely eradicate the virus as is being used in some other countries, in the US that's not even remotely feasible to the huge number of daily new cases. And as such, it can be thought of as being similar to the wearing of a mask, an approach designed not to eliminate the virus, but to reduce spread. And to that end, the Biden administration is investing in the development and distribution of home testing kits. Even though these self-administered rapid antigen tests 
analogous to home pregnancy tests, aren't as accurate as the PCR tests that are performed in a medical laboratory. They're easy to use, take only 15 minutes, and are far less expensive with results that are, I'd label, moderately reliable. A negative test doesn't rule out infection, but it's a far more accurate way than trying to guess whether you have COVID or not. And although a positive one doesn't prove infection, it can be followed up with a more definitive one should it come back worrisome. This gets back to the Forbes article we discussed. These home kits provide a first approximation, maybe in the 80 to 90% range, which would be a dramatic improvement for where we are today if used widely. And since they're maximally accurate during the time that we have the most virus being shed through our nose and mouth, and therefore when we're super contagious, they could make a huge difference. The next step towards broad use will be investments by the federal government in helping to bring down the cost, which is now about $14 for a pack of two tests. Robbie, recently social media included a large number of articles claiming that vaccines produce infertility. Is there any scientific truth to this possibility? Jeremy, the basis for this claim comes from anecdotal reports of some women experiencing changes in the timing of their menstrual cycles soon after being vaccinated. And researchers are looking in depth at whether this is accurate, and if so, what does it mean? According to the CDC so far, there is no scientific basis for this fear. In general, women experience this type of change in the timing of their periods in association with stress or infection. And soon after the stress or infection ends, the hormonal cycle returns to normal. In contrast to this minor deviation, the CDC points to the heightened risk to both mother and baby should the mom contact COVID-19 when pregnant. Women who contract the virus have been shown to experience a twofold need for ICU admission and a 70% increased risk of maternal death. In addition, there's added risk of preterm birth, stillbirth, and need for NICU admission for the baby. The data on menstrual irregularity from other causes like stress or infection don't impact overall fertility. And scientists believe the same will be the case with any changes that happen to follow vaccination. Pregnant women were excluded from the initial trials, which has been interpreted by some vaccine critics to mean that there was a proven risk. In practice, essentially all clinical trials of new drugs and medications exclude pregnant women so as not to take a chance on harming a baby in utero, even when zero risk has been identified. This, as we noted, was exactly what happened with the new Merck pill for COVID-19. So far, the risk of harming the unborn child from the mother becoming infected appear far greater than from the vaccine. And so far, those dangers appear far more likely than any risk of the woman becoming infertile. Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, as we said earlier, on the vaccination front, the data keeps improving. As of last Friday, according to the CDC, 217 million Americans, or 65% of the total population, had received at least one shot. 
and 187 million Americans, or 56.2% of the population, was fully vaccinated. And among people over the age of 18, the numbers are higher, with 78% having had at least one shot and 68% being fully vaccinated. And people are racing ahead to receive their boosters, with over 7 million having been administered so far by the end of August. What we often don't realize is how far we've come when it comes to immunization as a nation. As recently as the end of January, only 1.7% of the population had been fully vaccinated. And probably as a result of higher vaccination rates, we're seeing the prevalence of anxiety and depression dramatically decline to levels far lower than last winter, although they are still higher than existed before COVID-19 came ashore. In a positive non-COVID-related story, the World Health Organization last week approved the first ever malaria vaccine. Although this is a rare disease in the US, across the globe and particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a common and lethal problem. Overall, more than 400,000 people die from this mosquito-borne parasite annually, with half of them children under the age of five. The efficacy of this vaccine against malaria is only 30%, far below what we see with the currently available vaccines against the coronavirus. But still, 30% is far better than the situation that exists today. Having said that, the rollout will be complex since protection requires four shots, which could logistically be quite problematic for poorer nations. Overall, the WHO estimates that addressing this deadly disease will require approximately 50 to 100 million doses to be given each year. And that, I fear, could be a major hurdle for these countries throughout Africa to overcome. Robert, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this episode's big healthcare story? Jeremy, we pointed out in the last episode that the number one concern of Americans when it comes to healthcare is cost. We now have a huge amount of information on some of the reasons we spend so much more than any other country in the world. Public Citizen published data that show that among the 20 most expensive drugs, the United States accounts for $101 billion of expense out of a total spend of $158 billion. That means we account for 64% of the cost of these drugs around the globe. And what's remarkable about those numbers is that the US doesn't use any more of these drugs than other countries, but we pay a lot more for the medications compared to every other nation. Underlying the higher costs are restrictions on the federal government to negotiate prices on behalf of Medicare patients, something that all other countries do for their people. And because many of these medications are administered by doctors in their offices and in infusion centers, patients must pay a percentage of the total cost out of pocket. Currently, Congress is considering legislation to address the excessively high cost of medication in the US. But as you might imagine, the drug industry is fighting hard to stop it and investing millions of dollars in advertising to sway public opinion. So far, the polling data says that these efforts haven't been successful. But that doesn't mean the legislators will be able to resist the lobbying efforts 
and the campaign dollars the pharmaceutical industry provides. The second report on the economics of healthcare came from an analysis by the Wall Street Journal. It demonstrated that two patients with COVID when hospitalized could have bills that varied by tens of thousands of dollars despite having similar severity of infection and even when they were hospitalized in the same facility but simply insured by two different health plans. Overall, the cost of care billed varied from less than $11,000 to over $43,000 for those patients with moderate disease. And when it came to severe disease, in one New York City hospital, the bill averaged $55,000 if CVS was the insurer, $65,000 if the insurer was United, and $95,000 when it was Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield. The reason is that in American medicine, what's charged and what is paid reflect the hospitals versus the insurer's market power, not the actual cost of medical care delivery. It's easy to see why hospitals have fought so hard to keep this data confidential. Throughout most of the COVID pandemic, insurers waived their requirements for patients to pay a proportion of the bill. As we pointed out in a recent episode of Coronavirus The Truth, most announced changing their policy and requiring people to pay their full deductible and co-payments should they become infected with COVID-19, and that would amount to thousands of dollars per person. Jeremy, the American healthcare system is broken and it's becoming more, not less problematic. Medical costs remain the number one cause of bankruptcy for people. And it's a continued problem for businesses trying to compete in an increasingly global world. Few patients understand the perverse impact healthcare costs have on jobs and wages. I keep waiting for businesses to declare they've had enough and band together to restore rationality, but at least so far, they seem to tolerate the dysfunction. Just accept it as the cost of business. Frequently, however, at the employee's expense through reduced wages and higher deductibles. Finally, according to a report from Pharma, the Drug Industries Association, over 40% of Americans skipped at least one dose of their prescribed medications recently. And that number rose to over 50% when the person had a high deductible health plan. We discussed in our Fixing Healthcare podcast how many parents are forced to administer reduced doses of the life-saving drug insulin to their children with type 1 diabetes. This research shows that the economic hardships and negative impact on medical care span all ages. Any listeners who would like more information on this topic, go to my website, robertpearlmd.com. Jeremy, people enjoyed your analysis in our last episode of the president's best able to lead our nation through the pandemic. Many found your choice of Lincoln to be superb. One listener asked, who do you believe would have been the worst for this task? Robbie, the person who I believe would be the worst president to handle the pandemic is the person who I would consider to be the worst president in American history. This man is James Buchanan, our nation's 15th president. 
Now, there is some historical debate about whether uh, Buchanan is as bad as history remembers him or whether or not the Civil War was preventable if he had acted differently. Buchanan was the president right before Lincoln, whom I consider to be our best president in history. Shortly after Buchanan came to office, he was said to have influenced the Supreme Court's decision on Dred Scott, which uh, said African-Americans were not and could not become U.S. citizens, and that the federal government could not outlaw slavery in its territories. Buchanan was not necessarily pro-slavery, but he also did not see the writing on the wall in that slavery needed to end. He dumbly thought that the Dred Scott decision would end the debate about slavery and let the nation continue as it had up to that day. The whole, if it's broken, don't fix it concept, except that it was broken. Both Northerners and foreign countries were becoming increasingly anti-slavery, while the South had become increasingly frustrated with federal government. Buchanan seemed to alienate both sides of the slavery debate and ended up fracturing the Democratic Party. Buchanan led during a highly divisive time in American history and only fed the divisiveness and made it worse. Due to his fracturing of the Democratic Party, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate, was elected president, which led to seven southern states succeeding from the Union. Buchanan said that the states had no constitutional right to succeed, but that he had no authority to block them from doing so. He essentially was content to not do anything about the crisis and wait for Lincoln to take office and deal with this. Some argue that the Civil War was inevitable or that it would have been difficult for the nation to avoid. There are even some that argue that Buchanan did his best to avoid civil war during his presidency. My thoughts, though, are that Buchanan's actions and refusal to address slavery in a meaningful way when it needed to be addressed, while doing more to divide the nation than unite it, led the nation right into that conflict. He wanted to kick the can down the road and avoid the crisis, almost pretend like it wasn't even happening, which actually only made it worse. I believe that if Buchanan were present during the COVID-19 pandemic, he would have handled that crisis terribly as well. He would have not united the nation in a meaningful way. He would have done his best to manage the optics and public perception of the pandemic while crossing his fingers and hoping that someone else, perhaps the next president, would be the one to come in and lead the nation through the crisis. With the way the nation is currently divided, arguably the most since the Civil War era, who knows? I mean, if Buchanan was still president, perhaps he could have led us right into another civil war, something that must be avoided at all costs. Robbie, I know our listeners will want to know about Gavin Newsom's decision to require vaccine for in-person classes for all students in California schools. Can you elaborate? Jeremy, first, a couple of key points. This vaccine mandate is a universal requirement for both public and private schools. It would apply to grades 7 to 12, ones in which nearly all students are currently eligible for a vaccine. The start date could be as early as January of 2022, but it would wait until the vaccine is given final FDA approval rather than just the current emergency use authorization. Furthermore, the governor plans to expand the requirements to kindergarten through sixth grade once the FDA provides vaccine authorization for this younger age group. Pfizer has already submitted a request for approval of this vaccine for kids of these ages, with the dose plan being reduced to one-third of the adult dose. Most likely, given the time needed for full authorization, the mandate for this younger age cohort will be delayed probably an additional year to January of 2023. In total, across the U.S., there are 26 million children in this age group. The vaccine mandate will be enforced by each local school district, which currently is the practice when it comes to the other required immunizations. Because this vaccine mandate is being imposed through regulatory process rather than legislative action, 
parents who have the right to opt out of vaccination for their kids on the basis of personal beliefs. Of course, once the plan is working, the legislature could eliminate this parental exemption prerogative. In 2015, the California legislation took similar action when Jerry Brown was governor, eliminating personal belief and religious exemptions after declining vaccination rates in the state led to a huge measles outbreak. We'll have to see how many other states follow California's lead. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website and send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.